This is the National Medicine Symposium from the Canberra National Convention Centre. Please, uh, would you welcome uh, our keynote speaker, Dr. Harriet Teer. Harriet is the Deputy Director, Centre for Health, Law and Emerging Technologies from the University of Oxford and Research Fellow at Melbourne Law School. And she is here to speak this morning about law, ethics and practice, bringing consumers on the personalised medicine journey. Please make her welcome. Thank you very much and thank you for the opportunity to talk. So yes, I am a girl and I have a background in STEM, not in law or ethics. So. I've moved to this uh, field fairly recently and my interest comes from how we sort of bridge this gap or, or, or the interplay between the ethics, the law and the actual progress within medical research. So hopefully my talk will reflect some of that. So I want to talk to you about the consumer journey in particular. And there were many, many references to this yesterday in particular, particularly with our uh, rapporteurs as they finished our day, but also it's come up again this morning already. And I specifically want to talk about three different takes on this. So the first is how this future of healthcare is changing that journey. Then I want to talk about specifically the role of the consumer and how that might change. And then I want to talk about how we travel together. We've heard several times the value and the importance of this collaborative partnership and specifically of bringing the consumer on board. So I'm going to finish with that. So a change to the consumer journey. This is a very simple impression of what the consumer journey could be at the moment, where you start with an interaction with the health system you then have some sort of diagnostic journey, and then you have, hopefully, therapeutics that, that will help. This is already a very personal interaction. It will be influenced by how it is that you've interacted in the first instance, by whether or not there are multiple steps to your diagnosis, and then also the specifics around your treatment. This is not a new thing to be personalised. Potentially, your initial interaction with the health system will be because of symptoms or because of screening pro program. But when we talk about the consumer journey, we often think about it as starting with that initial interaction. Now, this is a slide that hopefully summarizes some of the discussions we had yesterday about what we're talking about. There was a lot of discussion around this personalized or precision or stratified, we also heard. Then we had a lot of discussion around genomic sequencing in, in particular and whether or not that was being slightly hyped, whether or not that could be realised. Digital health came up as very important. And then amongst all of this, the central role of the consumer, and perhaps if I'd had time, I should have also added the metabolomics that we heard about directly this morning. So if we think a bit more about the precision medicine conversation, and I absolutely agree that the terminology is very difficult and personalised is an interesting word. So I, I tend to err on the side of precision medicine. But there's a lot of emphasis around the risk management and the predictive opportunities, the preventive opportunities that genomic sequencing and other approaches to pre precision medicine may bring to us. And the question I ask then is what that actually means for the consumer. A lot of these points put a lot of responsibility on the consumer to engage and to interact with precision medicine in a new way from healthcare up until this point. And if we go back to our journey, it then front loads that interaction. If 
this is going to be a useful conversation in terms of healthcare delivery in the future that is economically viable and that can manage an entire population. What we're looking for is people to get better at understanding risks and managing lifestyle in order to prevent them becoming consumers or patients. But for that to happen, the consumer journey has to start sooner or earlier on. And one of the areas that I want to talk about in particular, which has come up a couple of times so far, but it's the research requirement and the role the consumer must play within research itself in order for us to really get much more uh, precise or much more um, particular about the information that can come from technologies like genomics. We need to keep going with this research and it needs to be on a population level, even if the treatments that we're then delivering won't necessarily be suitable for everybody. So what does that mean for the consumer, for their role within this conversation? A lot of the research that we do within my team is around the translational medicine area. So it's this interplay between being a patient or a consumer, being a participant, and the feedback loop that that engages with. Another way to look at it is the diagram here. And we often think very specifically about the flow of data around that. And we've heard a lot about data in the last day and a half and about all of this information that is the foundation for the research we're doing. All of that information is coming from the consumer. So we really need to engage with them in terms of how we're using it and what's happening with it. So the bench to bedside to bench, research participant to consumer to research participant, it's becoming a much closer conversation. And what we're beginning to think much more carefully about is how we get better buy-in from a much more diverse group of individuals. We're terrible at, using, at, at, at recruiting a very particular set of interested participants to being in clinical trials and to taking part in research. And we've, there are certain uh, populations that we're not so good at engaging with and we're not so good at bringing in. But when we're, when we're thinking about research on a population level, it surely has to be representative of the population we're trying to treat. So we go back to this diagram of the consumer journey. Traditionally, there's always been a research stream to this journey, and patients will be consented potentially into the research from their clinical experience. That's not a new thing. But the translational uh, bit that I'm talking about fits in between this clinical line and the research journey. And actually, I think what's happening now is that these two lines are becoming much closer together and that the movement in between them in terms of what's relevant for research, what's relevant for the clinic, is much closer together. And actually, the data flow needs to go backwards and forwards, and that our traditional separation of research and clinic is becoming not very helpful. And from a patient point of view or a consumer point of view, one of the areas that's particularly important to think about then is the consent process and how we actually support them in this movement between the research and the clinic such that the research they're involved in can be useful for their care and the care they're receiving will feed into the wider research sort of discussion. I just wanted a quick aside on the language I'm using. So I'm from the UK, so we're still very much talking about the patient and that's partly because of the way our health healthcare um, system is set up. It's very interesting being in Australia and, and thinking about the consumer, because for me that's a very different role, and actually, potentially, it's a much more 
powerful role, hopefully, consumer rights, the consumer is always right, all of these sort of um, ideals that come forward, whereas a patient is sort of potentially slightly less... Um, it, it, it has a slightly different connotation to it. But we have already made progress with this. We've moved from thinking about research subjects and donors much more to thinking about participants and even partners. And this is the point in personalised medicine that there's real opportunity. We've also had it raised a couple of times that this group of consumers is not one single homogenous group who all think the same and all behave the same and all want the same things. Um, Cycling, another group of potentially similar people. But actually, if we look at it a bit more closely, all of the people in these pictures may be described as cyclists, but perhaps their interaction as a cyclist is very different, or the role it plays in their life is very different, or it may not even be the thing that they describe themselves as first and foremost. It's exactly the same with our consumers. It's not necessarily a group you choose to be part of, but you find yourself in it, how we think about their involvement in research and in clinical care needs to reflect what, what the individual sort of interests or values are within that. And that's a very difficult thing to do when we're trying to work on a population level. There are lots of groups, and we heard yesterday lots of groups here in Australia that are very specifically thinking about community engagement. This is one example from the UK. This is a group led by Dr Anna Middleton at the Welcome um, research centre in Cambridge, who have very specifically been trying to tailor information about genomics to be much more accessible to different groups. And she did some brilliant work talking to different groups of patients about their understanding of genomics and then developing videos to try and help explain her research and to actually interact a bit more. And one of the points she had from a patient was that they were very confused because to them it sounded a bit like gnome, you know, the garden figurine that sits in your garden. And so one of her videos actually uses a gnome to talk about the genome, and, and she's had really good feedback um, from participants about that because it just makes it a little bit closer to their own experiences. But there are lots and lots of examples of people doing very good work in this area in Australia as well. So I wanted to now talk about if the role, if the journey is changing, or if the pathway is changing and the role of the consumer is changing, how do we bring that together to actually be moving forwards together and in partnership? And I wanted to use the informed consent process as a case study to demonstrate an approach to this. This is a particular area of work in our research team. Because informed consent for future research is a very difficult thing to get right. The informed consent process is obviously a very important part of getting people to take part in research, making sure they understand what it is they're signing up for, what the risks and the benefits are going to be. This is obviously important in clinical care as well. There are many well-documented issues related to the informed consent process that essentially demonstrate that it's not actually doing a good enough job in terms of letting people know what it is that they're getting involved in. So we've been trying to think about that, particularly in relation to genomics, to biobanking, to these types of research where actually there's an innocuous little box that patients are signing saying, I agree to future research, whatever that might mean. And there are other challenges within this area in terms of how data and samples are being used, the opportunity to share beyond the original research question. What if there are findings that need to be fed back? What if we need to 
um, be able to recontact participants. There's all sorts of complexity within the informed consent process in this new healthcare space that is important. At the moment, it's often broad consent that is used to try and overcome that. So you do sign a box, you do tick a little box to say, I agree to future research. It will be contained within the original area for that biobank or for that project. But as a participant, you still don't really know what's going to happen with your data and samples, potentially years down the line. And we think in our team that that is ethically and legally problematic, and that actually with the technology that's around us, we could do better. So we've been developing an approach to consent called dynamic consent, which uses an it provides an electronic record of the consent decisions that participants have made when they sign up to take part. And crucially, it allows them to go back and review those decisions, be reminded of what they've agreed to, and change their mind if they need to as time goes on. And the consent form is split into particular granular decisions so that actually people can make a much more nuanced decision about how they're involved and about what that involvement is going to look like, who they're happy for their data to be shared with, what sort of research they're happy to take part in. So that actually it's much more the patient or the participant or the consumer that's in the driving seat in terms of oversight and control of their information. Because it's on an electronic platform, it's creating a two-way channel of communication between the researcher and the participant so they can hear about what's going on with their samples and data and they can know what's actually happening with them. We've done quite a few focus groups with different participants about this and the thing they're most interested in is this opportunity to actually hear what's happening because often that's the bit that's lacking at the moment. Because it's electronic as well, there's opportunity to present that information through different media, not assuming that everybody trying to make these decisions need the same sort of information to agree to take part. So they can tailor the information to the individual's needs, and that really fits with this personalized approach that we've been talking about. The idea is then for the, the participant to be at the center of decision making, for there to be this ongoing interaction. It's not a one-off, front-loaded decision, but it's an ongoing interaction over time that provides a secure record of consent, which is useful from the researcher or the clinical team in order to know who is signed up for what. And as I've said, it engages with the individuals on a very personal level. We do have a lot of, um, we do have examples of, uh, sorry, the, um, in terms of genomics then, we think this is gonna be really useful in terms of how um, people can interact with their information when they're away from their clinical experience. So potentially you've signed up within the clinic and there's a lot of things going on and research isn't necessarily front and central. So we had a um, talk about the, uh, what the doctor said yesterday and this is kind of similar to that, that you can go and you can reflect in your own home about what it is you've signed up for and what those decisions have covered. And because the information can be provided over time, it's not quite such a front-loaded uh, decision-making process. It's not intended to replace individual face-to-face -face interaction with either the research or the clinical team, but actually to support those interactions in between those meetings. And potentially it can then help the patient or the participant to see how that data is moving between contexts to actually be able to track where the research stops and the clinical care starts and vice versa. And perhaps it could be a way to then also manage and store, deliver and store results as well. 
This is an example of a study that has used the dynamic consent approach. This is a rare diseases study in the UK that gathers an awful lot of information from rare disease participants. They sign up to take part and at any point during the study can access their consent decisions and crucially can change their mind at any point if it's relevant to do so, depending on whether their circumstances have changed, depending on whether something's happened that they react to or they need to react to. And we've had very good feedback about the value of this. We're at the moment still at the point where we're trying to gather information from individuals about how this influences the uh, participant experience. So we heard about the Australian Genomics Health Alliance yesterday. We're in the process of setting up an evaluation of dynamic consent within that setting. We have two flagships that are going to be using a dynamic consent approach with some of their patients, and we will be comparing that directly with a, con a traditional consenting approach to see how that um, affects the patient experience and hopefully to see that it adds value in terms of people's understanding and oversight of what's happening with their data and samples. Potentially the future of this could be that actually all of your information is brought into one place. Perhaps your My Health record information sits with the tools that you need to actually organize your appointments, receive your results. Perhaps you can bring in data from other aspects of your life that are of relevance to your healthcare. Maybe you're involved in research and the updates come through there as well. And within all of this, you can then have a consent opportunity to decide how your data and samples are being used more widely across the healthcare spectrum. And in terms of the traveling together, the reason that there is significant importance within this is making sure that patients, the consumers, citizens, the general public have supported these enormous projects that really rely very heavily on their data. There is a cautionary tale from the UK called Care.Data, which was an initiative that was tried to be, they tried to introduce a few years ago to bring together primary level data in order to provide a huge research resource. And it's brilliant hearing all of the updates and the feedback about Medicine Insight and all the value that that is adding. Potentially, this could have been something reasonably similar, except for the fact that the general public responded very badly to it for a number of reasons, not least because an awful lot of emphasis was put on the economic value of this data. And there wasn't a great deal of communication around how it was going to work, who was going to have access to what, and what it was going to look like. And ultimately, it failed. It crashed horribly, and it was going to be a hugely significant project for us. So I think this is a very important cautionary tale about what can happen when you don't travel together and when we don't have the support of the, individu of the individuals who really make all of this research happen, and therefore progress within the personalized medicine space as well. So I will end there just to emphasize that with all our discussion about the future being now and this development in healthcare, the role of the consumer is hugely important, but their experience is changing, potentially because of this blurring between research and clinic, which is incredibly important for progress, but that means that the role of the consumer is also changing. And what we really need to figure out is how we travel together. And just finally, some of the underlying principles that come from our dynamic consent example that I think we need to think about going on. Timing and how we make sure we have early and ongoing interaction. The importance of the research as a partnership across the board. 
this opportunity to provide people with oversight and control and really to, to feel that they know what's going on. Clarity and transparency across the board, therefore. And then finally, realizing the potential of mutual learning and sharing of information is hugely important. And I'll thank you there. Thank you. Harriet, please take a seat. Dr. Harriet Tia, thank you so very much. A fascinating uh, presentation. We have a little bit of time. Well, actually, we're kind of out of time, but I'm going to ask some questions anyway because I know that's what we're here for. Um, all fascinating uh, presentations this morning. I'm going to go straight to the consumer issue, though. Um, because we have this conference is very much focused on the consumer experience, and one of the words I was waiting to hear from in your presentation was trust. And I do notice that you had it right in your last slide there. But I'm going to um, as a, play the devil's advocate here, and the journalist in me can't help it. But as a consumer, the big issue for me is, as a consumer, when I'm going to receive treatment, for example, I'm about to, to undergo some of the treatments um, that Jeremy was, was referencing, and I'm terribly nervous about this. I will never be empowered enough with no amount of knowledge to understand what I'm about to, to have done as my health practitioner does. She has decades of experience and research. I never have. I'm smart enough to know that I'm not smart enough to understand it. So all I can do is rely on my sense of trust. Do I trust her enough to give me the right advice? to know what she's doing and be honest with me. I've asked about her failures and all that sort of stuff and, and grilled her about her successes and her failures. But in terms of the actual participation and being empowered, that doesn't mean anything to me because it's all about trust. And can I just add to this too? I, I work in the Institute for Governance here at UC and we've done a lot of work around the issue of trust and government. And of course, as we know, Australians have a very, we're at a record low level of trust in governments, in institutions. And that's why when I think it comes to healthcare and trusting our health practitioners, there's a big issue here when we're talking about consumer participation. It, it is hugely, hugely important. And, and there are all sorts of um, papers around, particularly around shared decision making, where ultimately you want to know what the options are, but you still want the doctor to say, and this is what you should go for, because you, you still want to draw upon all of their experience that is, that is much more sort of important in that decision than yours feels. And, and it's interesting, I mean, even when you have doctors who then become patients, they still within that role feel exactly the same. They, even if they know and have the rational expertise and experience that, that you're saying you wouldn't necessarily have, they still sort of want to rely on someone saying, and this is what you should do. And I'm in no way suggesting that that won't continue to be the case. Uh, it's more thinking about how to build trustworthiness in the first instance. So what it is, what is it about that relationship that, that generates trust so that you can hand over that decision-making. And I think one of the things that's very interesting and very important with the research aspect of this area of, of, of work is that very quickly you get a step removed from the patient. So if you're a bioinformatician looking at all of this beautiful data within your lab, the patient or the consumer who has actually contributed that data in the first place is, is really quite far away. And there's very good demonstration that the trust is key for that patient to say, here's my data. 
So what we're trying to do is to sort of just join up the gaps in, in that communication series to, to, to bring the patient a little bit closer to how, how their data and samples are being used. But, but I, think, I, I, I think it's a hugely significant thing, and I think the trustworthiness is a hugely important part of that that then allows that patient to hand out, because it's a huge responsibility they're placing on mm. the individual mm. in front of them. So that has to be backed up. Jeremy, what are your thoughts around that issue of trust and, and, and patient um, empowerment? Um, you've talked about you know, the, the need for better media literacy and, and, and political understanding um, when it comes to science and medicine, but the issue of consumer empowerment, is, it is one of trust too, isn't it? Well, of course, there's no substitute for a good doctor-patient consumer interaction to start with, and that's very, very variable, depending on, on, the, on the individuals. Um, but that said, um, it, it raises another issue about things like biobanks, where they're, in, certainly in the UK, one well, the idea is that the, the data are anonymised. But that isn't a very good use of those data. The reason that they're anonymised is because people don't trust you if they've got your name attached to the, to the data. But of course, all the fantastic things that will be done scientifically on those samples, that isn't directly available back to that, that person. And it could be very, very relevant to their, whether they live or die. I mean, so we've had the experience of that in our own laboratories where we collected a load of samples from students just to create a sort of reference base. And it was very clear that about two or three percent of them had diseases that they didn't know about. So, and they're supposed to be anonymised. In fact, they were doubles. They were sort of anonymised, but there was still a lookup. And we took at a very high you know, level of ethical approval. We decided we would inform people that had, in this case, diabetes that they didn't know about it because that affects their lives. So, trust is very important because. People need to know that their data is not being wasted. They need to know that it's not being abused uh, by insurance companies, for instance. Yeah, that, you know, there's, there's, there's one of the, that's, particularly in America, that would be a really big issue. Uh, but on the other hand, we're generating all these amazing amounts of information, and we're not using it efficiently to help our populations and our individuals. And I, I think that we need to address that in a grown-up way. We mm. have to have the, the debate, anonymization trust and all those things have got to be debated properly with a proper level of public understanding through that debate. It's going to be difficult. Well, I guess the trust comes into issues of privacy too, how, how that data is, is being used. Um, I just want to flick over to another issue that's been raised this morning that is, is, a, is a very prescient one as well, and the issue of skills. And even you, you raised this yourself. Um, in fact, you said early in, in your presentation that we need new skills and new skill sets. Can you? And, and then you finished off by talking about the need to encourage girls and high school girls, tell them that their future or futures can be in medicine and in STEM. Absolutely. But what are the skill sets that you're talking about when you're talking about convergence and a need for new skill sets? Well, it's a very simple example would be to know the level of mathematics in a typical medical education or statistical understanding is very low. And the fact that statistics can never give you causality, for example, is often forgotten. We are members of our population. The population that we are part of may tell something about us, but it is not us. It's a big difference. So some of those things we don't actually understand well enough, and that goes back to what Jeremy was explaining. 
genome is one part of the data, phenome is another part of the data. We will never bring that together unless we have people that can actually make sense of this data. And I don't think you can expect someone in the front line, a nurse or a medical doctor, to have all of that on their fingertips and that they will need experts that they can relate to and can work with. So I think teams that can make sense of data, teams that can interact with the patient, teams that can do back office work, working together to make some, a difference for a person and for a group of people. I think it's probably a better way of our resources than trying to cram all the knowledge into one person because that knowledge is growing so fast that we can't. Mm -hmm. So I, I would rather see teamwork in that space and that's the type of skills that I'm looking at. And when I'm saying girls, well I know medical doctors are often, there are lots of women in that space and, and nurses as well, but when I look at the data science part, it's lacking. And half of our population are women and so if we not able to relate to that from a data science point of view, what are we doing? Mm. Teamwork, which brings me to the last question I'll ask this morning uh, before we break, but, but Jeremy, coming back to um, collaboration, which you spoke about and the work that you're doing, Imperial and the, the National Phenome Centre, and working, you put up a slide at one stage where you showed the, the collaboration working together with a number of organisations, including here in Australia, and I think there were some in Canada, uh, mm -hmm. And I may have got this wrong, but it looked like a Commonwealth spread there of connections and US. I'm thinking culturally, are we expanding bit beyond an Anglo-Saxon, potentially Commonwealth kind of cultural collaboration? There are phenome centres in Hong Kong, Singapore. There's going to be a giant one in Shanghai, and there's going to be one in Tokyo. So uh, it's evol an evolving network, and it was never intended to be Commonwealth. That's going to be the last thing on my mind, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Oh, post-royal <laughs> wedding, I'm thinking Commonwealth all the time at the moment. But, uh, but I mean, the, no, the thing is, it evolved organically um, through communications and conferences like this. You know, yeah. we've built something which we are... We were very lucky that we were at the right time, the right place, with the right ideas, so we got the benefit of the government's attention to put in a very large amount of money to create a phenome centre. Without the Olympic Games, we would not have done that. Mm. It would never have been possible to convince people to put that amount of money in uh, for one speculative project. But once it was built, people went, well, we'd like one of those, and that, yes. what, that's what happened in Australia, and you've got one. And, and, and the examples you gave in Australia are, fan, are absolutely fantastic. And that was a great idea of yours to write that letter too, saying... <laughs> I've got an idea about what you could do with this money. Politically, very, very astute. But when you talk about the harmonisation of technology protocols and methodology and the, and, and the need to work together and that no single organisation can answer um, or meet all the challenges, you know, that's, it's a very obvious one. But it, it brings us back to that global question and the need for diversity, even at conferences like this, diversity of cultural import, doesn't it? It absolutely does, yeah. But ultimately, the thing that's going to drive all of this is economics. Mm. because politicians will have to start paying attention when the billion-dollar problem becomes a trillion-dollar problem. And some of the things we're talking about are trillion-dollar problems. And the only way... You know, there's no-one government that has enough money to tackle diabetes, for instance. Just take one thing. We, it's, it's a global problem. We've all got to get, to get, get on with it. Which comes back to the multilateral relations and, of course, and, and global organisations taking these issues on. And trust and data sharing way beyond what we're doing now. Yes. yes, then becomes a privacy <laughs> issue trust. as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's 
Yes. yes. I think, unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to have to leave it there. I could go on having this discussion all morning, but um, I've eaten right into your morning tea break. I do apologise, but it's been too fascinating not to. We, I do need you to return at 11am for the concurrent sessions. Uh, there should be a slide up there very shortly that will remind you of the concurrent sessions. All in your program details. Morning tea downstairs and back at the concurrent sessions at 11 o'clock. Would you please thank our panellists, Jeremy, Evan and Harriet.